Hi, I'm Sylvain Berthelot and you're listening to On One Condition, a podcast to raise awareness about health conditions by listening to people who live them every day. Today, my guest is Mackenzie Abramson. We're going to talk about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, as well as other conditions. Hi, Mackenzie. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for taking the time. Uh, it's always a, a pleasure to uh, talk to someone new. Uh, and I'm, I really appreciate you taking the time to share about your condition. Um, but as you may know, uh, I always like starting with a song that uh, means something to you or just makes you dance. So what's the song that you selected? Yeah, so... Um... There's a couple of songs that really just stand out to me, but um, Fight Song by Rachel Platten is kind of my anthem um, for living with rare disease um, in general. It's just something that connects to me and it makes me dance. Um, it, Whenever I'm having a bad day, I listen to it and just remember that I can pretty much get through anything. Um, and there's some other songs out there now as well that are similar Um, but this is kind of the original one that just made me remember I'm a lot stronger than I ever could have thought. I know that song. My uh, daughters dance to it. So I, I, uh, I know what you talk about. Uh, but I like the lyrics as well because you're right. They uh, make you realize that you can fight and you can get through things. Um, good choice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, Today we're talking about uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Uh, I know there are other uh, conditions that are linked to it uh, that we're going to talk about as well. Uh, but first of all, so uh, I think it's also called EDS, if I'm not wrong. Yes. Um, yes, okay. So let's call that EDS then. Um, so how did you realize that you have uh, EDS Yeah, so I um, grew up knowing something was wrong with me, um, but not really understanding what. Um, essentially, what happened was in high school, I broke my arm to start, um, and it never really healed. I needed multiple surgeries um, before it was really back to normal. Um, and then a few years later, I broke my ankle, and that's when things kind of just went downhill. I had my first surgery, and about six months later, I needed another surgery. About six months after that, I needed another surgery, and I just wasn't getting better. And it really started to dawn on me that I thought something was wrong. And I was only around 18 or 19 at the time, and no one was really listening. I told my doctors, hey, this, is, this can't be normal. Um, having surgery after surgery, you know, I, all I did was break a bone. Um, and so I started to do my own research. And so I was about 22. I had had maybe four or five ankle surgeries and um, I got multiple opinions. And I thought maybe I had like rheumatoid arthritis or I had something, something was going on where I just wasn't healing. And so I finally found a doctor who would listen and he was like, yeah, let's take a look. And um, he agreed something was wrong um, outside of just having an unstable ankle. And um, he sent me to a 
physiatrist, so a pain management doctor, essentially, who um, he knew exactly in 15 minutes. He said, I think you have this condition. I was like, what is it? And he said, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. He's like, I'm going to run a couple of tests here. Um, just, you know, checking how flexible I am, the way my body moves and my, my family history. And he's like, I really think you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And I had never heard of this condition before. This was around 2015. So he sent me to a geneticist. And um, again, the geneticist did kind of the same um, physical test, just checking how flexible I was, looking at my family history, my medical history, and um, diagnosed me with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, and, and yeah, it just kind of all made sense from then on. So is it a condition that you're born with? Yes. So the yeah. Ehlers-Danlos syndromes are a group of um, genetic connective tissue disorders. There's um, 12 types, actually, of the um, EDS syndromes. Most of them are very rare. However, the kind I have is hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and it's now believed that that's actually a lot more common than we used to think. Um, it, it used to be considered a rare disease, but the hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is probably not that rare um, okay. after all. But you are born with it. Um, they are all genetic. Um, so it's definitely something that comes from someone in your family. Uh, okay, I see. And is this, so when you... When you talked about your um, surgeries, was it just for the same uh, broken ankle that kept on getting worse and worse? Or why yeah. did you have to have Yeah, that's exactly surgeries? right. Um, so I, uh, same thing with my wrist as well. So I broke my ankle and um, on, so my left ankle, I've now had a total of 12 surgeries um, in, in about 10 years. Um, really? And it just doesn't heal properly. Um, unfortunately, because we didn't know that I had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome when I first broke my ankle, um, the methods that were used to, you know, repair and reconstruct and, and kind of the um, materials used don't work. Because um, when you think about connective tissue, which is what the EDS syndromes are, it's like the glue in your body, right? It's the glue that holds everything together. So if my body, if my body's glue is not working and I can't produce more glue and I can't maintain more glue, then I'm just not going to heal if something is broken. Um, so it just kept getting worse or it would get better for a little while and then it would be kind of flimsy again and it wouldn't work again. So it was just this cycle of surgeries, unfortunately, trying to get it to a place where I didn't have to rely on my own body's glue or tissues anymore. So the surgeries are there to address the broken bone, but they don't address EDS, do they? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So they, they can fix bones, but anything that's a connective tissue, so you know the tendons and ligaments that hold your bones in place, um, which is what EDS impacts, those won't heal correctly. Uh, okay. And is that why, do you have a tendency to break bones more easily as well because of how those tendons don't hold things together? 
Um, I don't know if I would say breaking bones necessarily, but I do sprain things um, very easily. And um, people with EDS often experience like dislocations and subluxations. So a joint may um, go completely out of place and you might need to go to the hospital to go have it put back in. So that's not considered a broken bone, but it is a dislocation. And then a subluxation is a partial dislocation. So um, your joints are kind of slipping around, they're unstable, they don't stay in place, but it doesn't necessarily require you to go um, to a hospital and have it put back, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, I see. So would that make it difficult to do sports then or to do like any physical activity? Yeah, it, it did. So growing up, I played a lot of competitive soccer. I played lacrosse. Um, and what we learned later on is, unfortunately, I, I probably never should have because it just caused so much damage to my joints. Um, you know, when you're a child, you're already really flexible because your body is still growing and your bones are still forming. Um, so we didn't think anything of it. Um, I got injured a lot, but it wasn't anything too crazy until I started having some broken bones. Um, it does impact sports. And as I've gotten older, it definitely impacts my physical abilities. Um, just even basic daily activities. Some days I'm in so much pain that it's too hard to, you know, get up and do laundry or cook in the kitchen. Um, but you have to find a balance, I think. And finding that balance is hard, but it's something that I keep practicing for sure. Is the pain linked to your broken bones or is it something that comes with EDS? I think it more comes with EDS. I definitely... Um, have some lingering pain where I've broken bones before, but I have more generalized pain in all of my joints, unfortunately. Um, it's just a common thing that people with EDS experience. Um, and there's not really any good options. You know, we can't, we can't live our lives on pain meds and we can't just stay in bed all the time. And sometimes staying in bed is not the right option. Sometimes movement is better, but you also can't be moving all the time. So um, the pain is hard. It's a, it's a hard symptom to deal with because everyone's is different. Um, some days I'm in so much pain that I want to cry. And some days I'm feel like I am a regular human being and don't have any pain. It just kind of varies day to day. Um, yeah. I was, um, interviewing someone who has fibro fibromyalgia. Uh, yeah. on the podcast and they shared how being in pain constantly is tiring uh, but also how they were constantly thinking about their energy levels and kind of monitoring it or almost preempting points where doing something might affect their ability to get out of bed the next day is it similar for you yeah, absolutely. So um, I have some doctors who refer to it as a baseline and some um, referring to it almost as a roller coaster. You have to um, give and take on what your daily activities are when you live with conditions like these, because some days um, 
you know, if I try to do the grocery shopping, the cooking, and the cleaning all in one day, the next day, I might not be able to get out of bed. So you really have to decide what is worth doing and prioritize and, and go based on that. And also you have to learn what your body will tolerate um, because it changes over time. Um, you know, again, as I get older, I can't do as much in one day without sacrificing what I might be able to do the next day. Yeah, that must be very hard to, to have consistently need to think about what you can and can't do. Uh, does it, how does your entourage support you and react to, to your levels of, of energy and your ability to, to do things? Yeah, I'm so lucky. I have a really great support system. Um, my family are, are just wonderful. They, um, they really understand. Um, I think partly because, um, you know, I said it, it is EDS is genetic. Um, my mom experiences a lot of the same symptoms I do. So she, she really gets it. She understands what it's like having to choose or saying, I need a break. I need to go lay down. Um, and then my dad and my significant other, they, they just really support us. They know when we're having hard days, um, and, and they get it. It's, it's really amazing because there are people out there who don't understand, um, or they see us, you know, on a good day and think, well, if you're having a good day, you must be healed. You must be better. Mm -hmm. And it's such a misconception because, um, I want to have as many good days as possible, but just because I'm having a good day doesn't mean that my conditions have miraculously gone away. No, yeah, I can imagine that. But it's, it must be difficult to have a condition that doesn't have any external signs. And I assume that you have to explain your condition quite a lot. Oh, definitely. To, yeah. yeah, so we call it... Um, you know, it's referred to as invisible illnesses. Um, mm -hmm. Some people with EDS, you know, do have to use mobility aids. Um, so it's, it's more apparent that they're struggling with something. Um, I don't right now. I'm really thankful for that, that I still have enough support in my body that I don't need a lot of mobility aids or, or help with things. However, it does mean that I have to explain to people pretty frequently that there is something wrong with me or why I'm so tired or why I'm so grumpy from being in pain. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's not easy. Um, and it also makes it hard with doctors. It makes a lot of doctors question, you know, well, you're, you're only 30 that you can't have that much wrong with you or, or those kind of questions because I look okay. I look like a regular, you know, 30 year old out, out doing stuff. Um, yeah. but internally it, like you said, it's definitely a, I have to pick and choose what, what I'm doing. Um, otherwise I could be sacrificing a whole week of being able to move around. Yeah. Yeah. Does it affect your ability to work at all? Um, It used to. I'm really lucky right now. I have a job where I get to work remotely. Um, so it's very flexible. Um, I get to work from home. 
Um, I try to sit up at my desk because it's good for me most days, but some days I'm able to, you know, if I need to take my laptop to the couch or to bed, even I can work from there. Um, in the past, I had jobs where I had to be in an office every day and those were hard. Um, it really took a toll on my body and my health. Um, just the act of having to get there even um, in a car is hard. And then sitting at a desk and not having as much flexibility in my schedule was really tough. Um, and prior to that, I was um, actually fully on disability, not able to work for quite a few years. Um, in college, it was at a point where um, all I could do was go to my classes, but even that there were times where my parents had to come stay with me and help me get to and from classes and get out and do shopping because I just couldn't do all of it anymore. Really? Yeah. Was was that linked to a specific situation that led to exhaustion in a way or? I think it was mostly that I didn't know enough about EDS and how to manage my symptoms and my body. Um, I wasn't getting enough exercise, which sounds kind of counterintuitive to EDS. You know, if you have joint issues and pain, you would think rest is the best thing. But um, for a lot of us, the best thing is to keep moving, stay in physical therapy and get some sort of, you know, strength training going on. And I wasn't doing that for a really long time because I didn't know. And so it got to a point where um, certain joints in my body just weren't working properly. Um, so my hips were really bad at the time. My ankles that I had surgery on was was really bad. And um, my wrist that I also broke was um, previously was was starting to get to a place where like I had trouble holding a knife when I was trying to cut food. And um, so things like that were just not good. Um, at the time. And so I've since learned how to kind of manage, like you said, manage those symptoms and manage like which activities I do in a single day. It sounds really, really tough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so you've talked about physical pain and how you need to look after your energy levels and so on. Do, does it also affect you from a, a mental health point of view? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so growing up, a lot of doctors told us that I had anxiety and I had depression, um, which I definitely did, but we just didn't realize that I had those things because I was living in so much pain and um, had these underlying health conditions. Um there were a few times early on when I was having ankle surgeries before, before we knew about EDS that doctors even told my parents that it was all in my head and I was crazy and I couldn't be in this much pain. And um, yeah, it really impacts the way you view yourself and the way you view your health. Um, I think that even now, um, I work really hard not to feel this way, but even now there's times where I feel like I'm a burden or I want to be careful about how much I tell someone I'm in pain, um, especially my family and my significant other. I think that um, if I'm saying that I'm in pain or that something's wrong, it means something's really wrong because I don't want to be a burden on them. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I can imagine that growing up, you, you always have this focus on fitting in, don't you? So Absolutely. it must be really hard not knowing what you have, this preventing you from doing everything that others do. That must be tough growing up in, in, in a condition like this. Yeah, uh, it definitely, it, it impacts you. And I think um, as a young girl too, you know, think starting to go into high school when things really started going wrong for me, um, thinking about my weight and thinking about the way I looked and my body not working the right way, it just um, really shaped uh, in an unfortunate way how I viewed my body and myself going forward. Um, and it's something that I still work on because it, it's just hard. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And some people talk about being diagnosed as a relief in a way. Did you feel it like that? Yes, absolutely. Um, so when I when I finally started to get some answers, I felt so relieved because um, it almost was like a told you so moment, I was able to go back to doctors and say, I told you something was wrong with me. I'm not crazy. Um, we never did that. I just stayed with my new doctors, but it was, it was a relief knowing that I wasn't crazy and that something was truly wrong. Um, it, it definitely kind of shed some light on everything that had happened to that point in my life, as far as health goes. Um, however, it wasn't, some people feel like that's kind of the end point, like, okay, I got a diagnosis and that's mm -hmm. that. And for me, that wasn't the case. Um, there were still other things happening that fell kind of outside of the EDS realm that I was like, something's still wrong. I know there's other things happening. Um, and so it was a starting point that made me feel good, but I knew there was still more that I had to figure out. Okay. Uh, before we move on to on to that, um, talking to so many different people uh, about health conditions, it feels like if one of the main progresses we need to make in healthcare is ability to diagnose people quickly, because I've heard the same story many times now. Um, is that something that you've shared with doctors and yeah, do you have any, any feedback on that? Yeah. I love this topic because um, there's so many things and so many areas where you can just really, you know, dive in. I mean, there's, um, you know, newborn screenings, which are so important. Um, but there's a lot of conditions out there that you can't get newborn screenings for it's, you know, it's a clinical diagnosis and, and it's, you get it when you're older. Um, I think that just a general knowledge among healthcare professionals is, is so important on, you know, they're told when, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras in medical school. And um, it makes, it makes you kind of shut out what, what these strange or rare cases might be. And I think, that's a good approach. I mean, it's always good to, you know, kind of rule out all the common things first, but then I think there needs to be more expansion of the exploration of like, well, maybe it is something that isn't that common um, because had a doctor listened to me, you know, in 
2010, I would have gotten diagnosed five years earlier. Um, so I think that just, just getting physicians to really listen to their patients is where we start. Um, I get that they've gone to medical school and, and they've people in research, biomedical research have, have years and years of experience, but I think listening to the patients is, is where we start with everything. Um, because when you listen to the patients, you're going to find out all the anecdotal information that might not be in their chart, that might not be in their medical history, that can explain so much and lead to better and quicker diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, so you mentioned that it wasn't the end uh, when you you got your diagnosis and that you felt there were other things that affected you. So do you want to share what it is? Yeah, yeah. So um, I got diagnosed with EDS, like I said, in, in 2015. And um, I was still feeling lousy. Um, we kind of had an explanation for my pain and my bone issues and joint issues, but um, I was still feeling not good. I had a couple of episodes where I had some fainting and um, I struggled to to stand still and, and just had some issues. Um, and so I started doing some more research and learned about a condition called Postural Orthostatic Tachycardic Syndrome, or POTS for short. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned that it pretty commonly happens to patients with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Um, and now you'll hear a lot more about it in the news about people who um, experience long COVID developing POTS. Okay. Um, and essentially, if you kind of break down the name, so postural means, you know, sitting to standing or laying to sitting, so changing positions. Orthostatic is your blood pressure and your heart rate. And then tachycardia, um, you know, means just irregular. So really what it means is a significant change in my blood pressure and heart rate when I change positions, which can lead to the fainting that I was experiencing, um, along with a ro- wide array of other symptoms. Um, I think that it's a, um, it falls under the dysautonomia umbrella, which means it's an autonomic nervous system dysfunction. And you know, your autonomic nervous system essentially regulates everything that you don't have to think about. So your breathing, your temperature regulation, your blood pressure, your heart rate, all of those are regulated by your autonomic nervous system. So if that's not working properly, in your body, um, you know, my body forgets to regulate my temperature. Sometimes it'll be a hundred degrees outside, um, Fahrenheit and I'll be freezing (laughs) and, um, wanting to put on a hoodie if cold air blows on me. So I think that, um, these are things, you know, we don't always think about because, you know, breathing is just something we do. We don't have to think about it, but sometimes, um, when you feel like you can't catch your breath, it's because you're, um, autonomic nervous system is not functioning properly. And that's, those are some of the symptoms I was experiencing, um, with POTS. And so I got that diagnosis in 2018 and it, again, kind of a relief, everything started to make sense again. Okay. I have EDS, I have POTS, Mm -hmm. um, everything made sense for a while. Um, most of my symptoms were kind of fell into either one of those conditions, Um, however, in the last year I've, so 
that was 2018, um, probably around early 2021, I started to just not feel very good again. Um, I'm really struggling with sleep. That's probably my biggest issue right now. Um, I sleep through the night, but I never wake up feeling rested. And um, I started getting sick again a lot, which was unusual because that hadn't happened to me in a long time. But I was just kind of having like cold symptoms all the time. They wouldn't Mm -hmm. really go away. Um, And so last month I I was um, seen at Stanford and got diagnosed with myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome. And um, again, relief that everything is making sense. Um, Like there's an actual condition and reason for why I never feel like I've slept enough. Even if I sleep 10 hours, I don't wake up feeling rested. Um, And it's really essentially a inflammatory condition. Um, Myalgic is, you know, the brain and then um, encephalomyelitis or myalgic, I'm sorry, is sleep. And then um, encephalomyelitis is inflammation in your brain. So um, really essentially my brain is inflamed and, you know, areas of my body are inflamed. And if we can get that under control, that will help improve sleep and sleep quality. Um, And as I'm sure you're aware, like sleep quality impacts everything. It impacts your pain. It impacts your your eating. It impacts your mental health. Um, So to me, this diagnosis, um, although the newest, is probably the most important because without good sleep, everything else is going to be out of whack. You know, my my EDS pain is going to be bad. My POT symptoms are going to kind of flare up and and be out of control. So um, yeah, now I'm on a a journey again to get get these symptoms under control. Wow. <laughs> As if one wasn't enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so do, do you have any medication to address any of your symptoms then? Yeah. So for um, for the, the chronic fatigue syndrome, there are some treatments, um, medication treatments that we can try, which I'm starting, starting out now. Um, it's kind of early on. So we got to give it a little bit before we see how they work out. But, um, you know, with all of these, I think the most unfortunate thing is there's no FDA approved treatment at all. Um, we have to kind of just treat the symptoms for every condition that you have. Um, and there's a lot of conditions out there that are like that. Unfortunately, I think that, um, there's not enough drug repurposing. There's not enough off-label use of drugs that, that can help um, right now. I think that people are hesitant to prescribe something that isn't approved for our conditions, even though it might help treat our symptoms, Um, which also just leads to the point that there's not enough research out there. There's not enough research happening on, um, on conditions that may not make the most money for pharmaceutical companies, but they are impacting so many people that it's important we start addressing it. Yes, that's, well, two very important points that you're raising here. I, I don't really know where the regulations stand, actually, about um, repurposing existing medicines on, on conditions. Um, but on the research side, it's about being able to justify an investment and and having this return so definitely i see 
your point about not having enough research on conditions that don't necessarily have enough patience in a way, uh, no matter how terrible it is to think mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, uh, so, but on on the repurposing point, have you have you looked into that? Is it something that is allowed but yeah, not done? I think it's all dependent on um, what we're talking about. You know, there's drugs out there that were made for one thing and are now being used for something else. Um, it definitely happens um, in the U.S. The FDA does does research on it, and it happens a lot. I think again, it. It stems, though, um, in rare conditions and, and chronic conditions, I think it's more, it starts with the lack of research um, because not enough people are out there that want to research something that is so rare. So there's not even conversations happening about drug repurposing um, or even, you know, drug, drug changes. Um, it's hard. I imagine... There's a lot of conditions out there that are just chronic pain. Um, like you said, fibromyalgia, EDS. There's there's so many conditions that just people live in really high states of pain all the time. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like there's research out there happening on pain management um, medications that aren't, you know, um, I don't want to be on opiates. I don't, I don't want to live like that. So what are my options? Um, I've had doctors tell me like lifestyle changes and like, that's great. I've done the lifestyle changes. You know, I exercise, I eat right. I do all of those things, but that's not enough when you have a genetic condition <laughs> that causes pain. So what are my, what are my other options? Um, there's not really any right now. So how do we, how do we reframe things in research to get people excited about helping us with our symptoms um, that, maybe no one else wants to like pain or something as simple as a headache. You know, a lot of us experience headaches pretty frequently. Um, there's medications out there, but you know, there's always a trade-off when you take a medication, maybe the side effects of the medication are, are worse than the symptoms that the medication is treating. So it comes back to having to find that balance and making decisions about what's right for you. Yes, and I imagine if there's no research done, then even existing medication, you don't necessarily know how the side effects are going to affect you with your conditions. Exactly. That's exactly right. I think that um, my family and I joke because anytime there's a side effect listed, at least for me, I probably will experience it when I take a medication. Um, and it's hard because, you know, some medications you have to take for three or four months before you start seeing a real impact. So do I live with the side effects from the medication during that time and, and probably not feel very good? Or do I just not take the medication and live with the symptoms, which also don't make me feel very good? It's, there's no really good options. Um, so you have to weigh the, the benefits and the risks for yourself. Yeah. And do you, think things like rare disease day and patient advocacy help at all with the research? I do. Um, I think rare disease day is really important. Um, but so many of us live with it all the time that it shouldn't just be one day, right? Um, you know, we have breast cancer awareness month. Um, it's a whole month long, right? So why are we not 
celebrating and advocating for conditions more frequently, more often um, in the places where it matters. You know, we have Rare Disease Week on Capitol Hill in the U.S. and um, we go we go talk to our legislators and tell them why it's important for them to start funding research and funding programs for us. Um, I think that, yeah, I think advocacy is important, but, you know, you can only advocate so much to the people who already want to listen. It's how do we get buy-in from people who, who aren't listening? How do we get buy-in from the pharma companies who are studying cancer, but maybe not studying rare diseases. Like, how do we get them to acknowledge us and help us? Very, very good questions. Uh, I wouldn't know where to start. So unfortunately, <laughs> I'm not I'm not able to, to provide any help here, I'm afraid. Um, but no, that's that's very good point. Um, and I, I wish we could move things and, and change the system so that it would make it easier for research to happen. Because um, in a way, I don't think it's that people don't want necessarily, but there's probably in our industry some blockers that people are aware of that would stop them from even starting it, in a way. Yeah, I'm sure there's, and I don't know the back end of how you know, pharmaceutical companies get their funding and all of that. I'm sure there's barriers, but well, I think a patient patients need to get in the door, I think is where where my brain is, is we need to, um, pharma, pharma companies should always have a patient on their team, whether it's a patient with the condition they're looking at or not, there should always be a patient to get that perspective. Um, hospitals should have like a patient liaison person. You know, there should always be someone with that experience or at least mindset of others that understands um, so that we really can start advocating for change. I love that. I absolutely love that. Thank you for uh, making that suggestion. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, I feel like we, we've really gone into uh, knowing you and, and your conditions. So thanks a lot for sharing. Um, I always like ending by a question, um, which may surprise you. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like knowing what your happy place or so a place where you feel at peace? Oh, man. Um, so I think my happy place for me is really anywhere that has um, my significant other and my animals. I have two dogs and a cat who I just love. Um, they're my whole heart. And anytime that I can be with my family and them um, and just relax where I don't have to think about work or medical or anything. Um, that's my happy place when I can kind of turn off the day to day and just hang out with the people I love. Amazing. Kind of a family cocoon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you very much, Mackenzie. It's been amazing talking to you. Uh, I wish you all the best uh, with your new uh, medication. Hopefully it will address some of your symptoms. 
uh, and also the best for managing your energy levels and hopefully some research that will help you in the future. Yeah, thank you so much. I really, I really loved chatting and thank you for having me. Thank you.